So this evening, I would like to follow a little from what Stephen was talking about this morning and, talked about, and talk about contact and feeling, but their connection uh, with non-grasping. And first, I would like maybe to, I don't know if it will help or not, but I'd like to just say um, two short stories about my experience with NAMA factors. And we'll have a slow NAMA factors, and then we'll have a fast NAMA factors. Because personally, I find it very interesting, kind of the way Stephen described these five kind of elements of the way we work as human beings. And so I was in, uh, so I was at the retreat in March in uh, America. And so we entered in the building, and this is a new place. This is a forest refuge, and it was partly created by Joseph Goldstein. And so it was totally new, the building, and the 30 teachers who had been invited uh, were like guinea pigs. We were supposed to test the building out before the inauguration of the place two months later. So we were kind of just checking out how it was. And so I go into the bedroom, and as I enter the bedroom, I open the door, enter the bedroom, and there is a sink, and there is a board around the sink, and on the left, there is a mirror. So there is contact, vision, visual object, the mirror. It's on the other side, of the sink, and so contact says mirror on the left, feeling a little puzzled, discernment, well, maybe they want us to cultivate renunciation, so we don't look at ourselves straight when we get into the room. So every day I try to kind of floss my teeth this way, (laughs) and being a little small, it's a little tricky. So finally, after a few days of this, contact continue with the mirror, feeling it's a little more exacerbated, thinking, you know, this is weird. <laughs> Discernment, ponder, and then finally, attention kicks in. Attention, focus on the mirror, and more discernment appears. That actually, the mirror is not stuck on the wall, but there seems to be a thickness. And then, finally, intention kicks in, and I open the mirror. And behind, there are shelves. So, discernment, this is a different mirror. We don't have those in France. And maybe they have a good reason to put it on the left. So now... We look at the NAMA factors in a more fast, and I think that's what, in a way, we have to be careful to see them as kind of, you know, one leading to the other. I think it kind of just depends on the condition. And this is a condition where actually I think the whole NAMA factors actually were activated, I would say, in a millisecond. And I was really kind of quite amazed. And so what happened... I was in Fairfax last year in the wood, and I was walking in the wood and trying, when I walked in nature, to be aware. So I was aware, 
walking. And suddenly contact. Something in front of me I am going to step on. Then there was attention looking more at the thing. Then there was discernment, rattlesnake. <laughs> then there was feeling fear. Then there was instant action, double jump. <laughs> I have never jumped so fast in my whole life. And Simon said, what happened? The Olympics. <laughs> and it was interesting how it all happened before I even was nearly conscious of it. So I think, in a way, these Nama factors actually, in a way, nearly, I would say, below our really kind of sometime awareness of it. So why I want to talk about contact and feeling is because, to me, this is really what I found the essential point in practice. Through this meditation, whatever meditation we do, it seems to me that to become aware that there is contact, that's what, at the moment, I'm really working on to see, ah, there was contact. And then look at what happened after there was a contact. Or, ah, there is a feeling. Look at what happened with the feeling. And to me, this is a meditation practice, to really notice how we come into contact and how there is this feeling tone Stephen was talking about. And in a way, the question becomes, when there is contact, when there is feeling, what goes on? And to me, it seems a question of, is there grasping or not? To what happened afterward? Are we just contact and we stick to it, feeling and we stick to it, and then there is proliferation, aggravation, or can we just be in contact? Can we just be with the feeling tone of whatever we are encountering, whatever it is provoking? And I would say, in a way, the meditation, it seems to me, is a process of de-grasping, of releasing, that actually what we're doing, I know people, they sit and they kind of generally hope to get certain meditative state, but I would say more important than that is that kind of we constantly working as we meditate on de-grasping, on releasing. And... Because, in a way, what is very clear, I think, is the fact that there is suffering, and a lot of the suffering comes from the grasping. And I feel we grasp in two different ways, which is very interesting. We do what I would call positive grasping. We grasp at something we identify with, we grasp at something we like. But we also do what I would call negative grasping, which is as powerful and sometimes we don't consider it enough, that as soon as we reject something, we're actually grasping at it. We're actually grasping in reverse. We're pushing something away, but by pushing it away, we actually often make it bigger than it is. So there is grasping in two different ways, not just positive, but also negative. And it seems to me that the meditation can help us to see the mechanism of grasping, the process of grasping, because actually things happen, various things happen when we grasp. And to me, that's what is very interesting in meditation, to start to become aware of that process, of that mechanism. 
So if I can just kind of uh, show it as a kind of a practical example. Let's say this object is, I don't know, diamond, gold, the greatest truth in the universe, whatever it is, it is precious to me and I hold on to it. It is mine, I want to protect it, I want to keep it, I want to hold on to it, so I do this. And if I do this, two things will happen. One is that I will get a cramp in the arm. I mean, try to do this for more than two hours. You know, maybe 30 minutes will be enough. We'll get a cramp in the arm. And this is, in a way, why we feel tension is because we are not constantly, but a lot of the time in this process of grasping, of holding, in this creating tension in our life through the grasping. But I would say even worse than that, what happens if I do this? If I do this, I cannot use my hand. And then I grasp with this hand, and I grab with my feet, and then I am immobilized. And I often I think what happens is that we get stuck. We kind of st- get stuck on something, and we reduce ourselves to it. We limit ourselves. We are limited by the fact that we grasp at whatever it is. That I think it is, in a way, the most painful thing we do to ourselves. So in a way, in terms of spiritual practice, there are three, I would say, different methods to deal with this grasping. One, it's an interesting method. You cut the hand and there is no grasping anymore. I mean, that's a little drastic, I would say. But I mean, some spiritual practice, that's what they do. Other spiritual practice, you get rid of the object and then... You cannot grasp at anything. That's also, I think, a little drastic. It seems to me more practical. And to me, it seems that what the process of meditation is about is not getting rid of the end or the object, but actually learning to de-grasp. So then there is movement. I can move the thing. I can put it back. There is freedom. There is movement in connection, in contact with the object. So I think what happens with the grasping, it seems to me that first, there seems to be this identification. I am in contact, this is mine, I am experiencing this. Then there is solidification. You identify, then you solidify around what you identify with, you isolate yourself, then you limit yourself, reduce yourself to what you grasp at, and then even worse, you magnify it. And then you will say, I have, the, I have a problem, and the problem is bigger than me. Often you have the feeling a thought is in control of us, or a feeling is in control of us. But in a way, we cannot reduce ourselves to a thought we cannot reduce ourselves to a feeling. I think a lot of the time that's what we do by reducing ourselves to it, then we magnify the thing we are grasping at. 
So what I like to look at now is this process of contact and non-grasping. And first, I like to look at it from the Zen perspective and just look first at a quote by Master Huineng, the sixth patriarch. And that's what he says. No mind is to know and to see all things with a mind free from attachment. When in use, it pervades everywhere, yet it sticks nowhere. What we have to do is to purify our mind so that the six aspects of consciousness, the eyes, the nose, the tongue, the ears, the body, the mind, will neither be colored nor attached to the six-sense object, visual objects, smell, tastes, sounds, tactile sensation, and thoughts. So if you can look at it again, no mind, so in Zen, often you hear this, of this concept, this idea of no mind. And what is interesting, when we sit in meditation, then you kind of seems to think, well, I must have nothing in my mind. I think, you know, my brain must kind of go dead or something. Often we have that kind of, we think that's what it means. But here it's very clear. No mind doesn't mean that you are unconscious. No mind is to know and to see all things. So in having no mind, actually you know everything. You can see everything. So there is not a stopping of contact, of relationship. But you know all things with a mind free from attachment. So in a way, the problem is not with the mind, but it is with the attachment. And then he goes on to say, no mind when in use, it pervades everywhere. So again, there is this feeling of expansion, of connection, of relationship, yet it sticks nowhere. And then he says, what we have to do is to purify our mind. And often when we think of purification, we think of getting rid of objects, getting rid of things, getting rid of whatever we might be attached to. But here, no, he said, what we have to do to purify our mind is so that the six aspects of consciousness will neither be colored nor attached to the sense object. So we have the senses, Stephen mentioned this morning. We have the object that we encounter through contact. And the thing to do is not to switch off, is not to be colored, no influence. And for me, this is very much what is interesting in our daily life, to look at contact in experience, to really notice when our, we have this impact on our senses, what do we do? For example, if we have, we have the eyes, and then the eyes will encounter visual objects through the visual consciousness. And to me, that's what was interesting. I mentioned it already at previously. Is when I was in the retreat in March, and I had problem with my stomach, and I can't eat peppers. Red peppers, yellow peppers, green peppers, I cannot eat them. And I was a person who used to cut the vegetables. So every time, every day at 8 o'clock, I used to go into the kitchen and there was this bowl full of peppers, you know, 10 peppers, 20 peppers, 30 peppers. I mean, the, the cook seems to be very enamored of peppers for some reason. 
And to me, it was very interesting. Every morning, I would enter the kitchen and then contact peppers. <laughs> and I could see I had the choice to kind of just see the pepper and cut them as was required, or to kind of go into this old, oh, you know, this cook, da 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 And I could see there was no point in it. I mean, my choice was not to eat it, which I did. But it was interesting in a way I could see I had the choice to either kind of go into full grasping mode at the contact of the pepper, or actually just be with them as they were, and then deal effectively in terms of my problem with them. Or another thing that I could see when I was there in March is that it was, so it was, it's in Massachusetts. I was there for a month, and there was that much snow outside the whole time. I loved it. It was wonderful. And... Uh, so every day I would go for walks, and then I would see these beautiful birch. They have these amazing birch trees in Massachusetts. They're white. They're totally white, and they're totally straight, and then they're just beautiful. I've never seen a tree like that. And so I would walk, and then I would see the tree, the white birch, and I would say, wow. I would just stand, you know, communing contact with the white birch. And then I could see when the grasping would start. Ooh, this is a nice white birch. It would be nice to have a white birch in our garden. Which garden center should I go to? And by then I was not with the birch anymore. I was in France shopping. And then to kind of, oops, back to the birch, and maybe now we can go for a little walk. <laughs> it was interesting, again, to see the contact, staying with the contact, and then when it started to proliferate into grasping, into kind of various movements of the mind. Sorry. But I think, in a way, we visual object with the eyes and visual object. I think there is something else we can do, and that is very fascinating. It is actually grasp at a visual object which is not there. So in a way, you see two things. You see what you're looking at, and exactly at the same time, you're seeing also something else. And generally, you grasp negatively at what you see in front of you, and you grasp positively at what you imagine. And in our house, we have this guest room I mentioned, which has the leaks on the ceiling. And whenever we go in the guest room to do whatever, my iron board is there, I can see the moment where Stephen is with the bedroom as it is, and when you go into this, how it should be. Physically, I can know. You can, and I can, within the second, he says, if it was like this, like this, like this. And I can see that he sees, you know, that the bed would go and the cupboard would go and there would be this. And, the, and he sees it. And because he sees something else, which is possibly more aesthetic or whatever, 
then there is this kind of, you know, rejecting of what is there. Very interesting how I can see, whoop, here he goes into his grasping at what is not there, what possibly could be there one day, we don't know. <laughs> then there is the ears and there is sounds. And again, with the, with the sound, it's very interesting to notice when there is contact. What do we do with sounds? And sometimes we, I mean, it's interesting to see you have somebody maybe sitting next to you who is breathing heavily. And then people will come to me and they say, they're breathing heavily, you know, really. You know. And then I say, but what about the birds? Oh, the birds are fine. No problem with the birds. But problem with the, sit with the person sitting next to one, you know, breathing heavily. And, I mean, both are sounds. But it's interesting, what is it? We grasp at and we say, yes, that's okay. And what is it? We negatively grasp at and say, this is not okay. I don't want it. You know, we want to do something about it there. And kind of to notice that, because I think sometimes, I mean, this is what I found very useful in awareness practice, is with this going inside the contact with the sound. And because I had this experience in France, we kind of were doing various things, and we had kind of uh, got rid of a shed. And you might hear about the shed at some point in this talk. Stephen might talk about it. And underneath the shed, there was this concrete uh, huge, really thick concrete slab. And so we had to get rid of it. And so we kind of, kind of uh, got uh, somebody to come and kind of drill it with a pneumatic drill. And the day the guy came, I had to work, I wanted to work in the garden to move some plants. So again and again, I would come back to where the guy was drilling and I would kind of be doing things with the plants. And what was interesting is that, I mean, drilling noise is really, really loud. I mean, it's kind of nearly, you feel it physically. Kind of. And with the awareness practice, with this non-grasping, I would go inside the, the contact of the drill with my kind of ear and the consciousness of it. And actually, it was fine. And it was interesting to kind of be with it in that way where there was no grasping. And it was kind of just this amazing sound. And when I would move away from it, and then kind of I could see I had the decision to think, oh, this is too noisy, I can't stand it, or to, oh, this is a sound in the environment. And that's what I would kind of suggest you explore during the retreat, although we don't have that many sounds here, to kind of go into the contact with the sound. Another thing which is interesting in terms of sounds, it's words. How so easily, as I mentioned yesterday, we grasp at words, and actually even more so how we are influenced by words. I found that fascinating again and again. We have the feeling we are this person who is quite stable, quite settled, and yes, we can listen with awareness. But sometimes I find myself listening to kind of somebody or discussing something with a friend, and then they start to say kind of nasty thing about somebody else, which I have no problem with that person. But for 20 minutes, they say, well, that person, they did this and they did that, they're terrible, and da-da-da, how could they, and, you know. And by the end of the 20 minutes, I suddenly realize that I start to feel negative about the other person, although that person has done nothing to me. 
And I find that very interesting how words, we can be so easily influenced by them. It doesn't mean that we don't listen to them. It doesn't mean we don't take them in consideration. But I find that it's interesting that contact with the world and what happened after that, how we can be influenced by it. And then there is nose. There is nose, there is a smell. And this, I mean, that's what is interesting about Spirit Rock for me. I was here last year. And I come to Spirit Rock. I get out of the car in the parking lot. I walk a little and then I am hit by this smell. I think it must be eucalyptus. Am I right? Bay leaf. Bay leaf. All right. And so I kind of, I am surrounded. This is very kind of, wow, I'm surrounded by this smell. I do not smell anywhere else. And it's quite amazing. You are with it. And then it's interesting. What do we do with this smell? What do we do with this contact? Do I just stay with the contact? Or do I start to proliferate, you know, oh, this is nice, this is not nice, da-da-da, whatever. Can we just being with the smell, just in a way, yeah, being with what it is at that moment. Or what do we do with possibly what we think is a, a bad smell? And I mean, in, uh, in France, it's uh, wonderful. This is great for practice. Uh, we are a sangha or two, but still there is enough things around to practice. And we have this wonderful terrace in the countryside, and it's beautiful, idyllic, bucolic, you name it, it's fantastic. But then regularly as we sit on the terrace, we have this little kind of burning smell of plastic because the neighboring farmer's wife burned her plastic right underneath our terrace. So we're And it's interesting to be, and we can't do anything about it. We kind of checked, you know, da, da, da. can't do anything about it. So, and so it's interesting to get the smell and just to be with it, you know, to kind of, be with that smell as it is, instead of kind of, you know, grasping at it and kind of doing all kind of thing with it. And then there is a tongue, and there is a taste. And in a way, that's what you might have noticed on a retreat. This is the last thing that, you know, you kind of got. The last thing that you left with. Taste. Taste bud. The only enjoyment, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully, that you can have. And in a way, when on a retreat, what I find interesting is to kind of try to really be the contact with the taste. Like if, you know, there is something you really like, to really, as you eat it, really try to be the taste of it. For example, for myself, I love cherry. But it's interesting. I love the idea of cherry. I love cherry. But actually, they're too sour for me. But still, I... (laughs) I keep eating them. It's kind of weird kind of thing. So I kind of eat them, I eat them, and it's just interesting to go beyond the idea. You know, I like them, I da-da-da-da, and just be with the taste of it, to kind of just explore that contact. And there, I think, with the taste, we can notice one thing, which I think is very interesting, is a thing about the difference with what I would call new and old experience. And how I think a lot of the time we grasp at recreating a new experience. But we can have an experience of new contact once, but we cannot have it again with the same thing. But we try to recreate it, especially with taste. 
I remember for, I mean, when I was in Korea for 10 years, I mean, I ate Korean food, but I loved, I loved couscous. So when I came back to France and we were in Paris, let's go to this wonderful Moroccan restaurant. And we went and I had the most fantastic couscous I have ever had. It was just sublime. And of course, the next day I wanted to go back and we could, so we went back. Same couscous, same place. Very different contact. I mean, it was the same ingredient, but there was not that wow effect. And that's when I realized that actually a lot of the time, not just with taste, we try, we have this amazing aha new moment. And then we grasp at it. We grasp actually not at the thing itself. We grasp at the newness of the contact. And then we try to recreate it, which is impossible. And then we kind of doom to frustration. And then we keep trying to find new way to have that special, new, special contact. What is also interesting with food, which I don't know if you have uh, experienced this during the retreat, it's in terms of meaning, in terms of description. We have contact, and I think discernment here comes in. And what happened to the grasping there? Because sometimes you eat something, that's what I had in March. Again, I mean, they would give you all the ingredients, even reading all the ingredients in the thing. I mean, it was kind of like chapter and verse, you know, you had every single element. (laughs) Took you about five minutes to read everything. But because I'm French, I would interpret it in a different way. And then I would be eating, I would say, this doesn't taste like I thought it should taste. So again, again, there was this kind of strange, you had a contact with something you could not discern in that way. And then you, kind of, you had kind of from positive grasping, very quickly you went to negative grasping. It's kind of quite fast. Then there is a body, and there is tactile sensation, contact, with tactile sensation. We have, you know, we are in contact. And I must say, I had this, I thought, very interesting, again, experience in the, during the retreat in March that, you know, I told you I really wanted to meditate, so I could not meditate at 3 o'clock in the morning, but at least I could meditate from 5 o'clock onward. At least I could do that. So every day I would wake up at 5 o'clock, but I wanted to be clean before I sat, so I would go to the shower. And the shower was a little lukewarm. And it's a tall shower, and I'm small. By the time it reached me, it was kind of a bit cool. But I thought, no, no, contact, no grasping. Because I really don't like lukewarm water, but I'm going to tough this out. So every day, this went on for a few days, till discernment came in again. And discernment said, well, this is America. They didn't really like hot water. There must be hot water at some point. So I kind of I checked, you know, 10 or, uh, 7 o'clock. There was hot water at 7 o'clock. So I went 7 o'clock, and then I went to my first shower at 7 o'clock. And that first heat of really hot water was like, wow, this was so nice. This was a contact was just, again, quite sublime. But at the same time, I could see there was no point in grasping. 
Because, I mean, I could not stay under that shower the whole day. I mean, I could have tried, but I would have kind of started to wrinkle a bit. But it was interesting, that sensation, contact, sensation, and then just, in a way, being with it and then moving on from that contact to the next contact. Otherwise, there is tactile sensation, which are painful. And in a way, I think then when we sit in meditation, often that's what we encounter. I know a lot of the time we think meditation should be pleasant and relaxing, and then you sit there and you know you get pain in the knee or you get pain in the back or back in the shoulder and you're kind of sitting there. And, and in a way, I think this is one of the key, not that we should necessarily have pain when we sit, but in a way with the instead of grasping, identifying, and kind of magnifying it, to really go into it. And again and again, I'm always amazed by when you go into it, it's so different. It's just kind of the, the fluidity of it, the changing condition nature of it becomes so apparent. So I think in the contact, actually, we can, in a way, discover those marks of being in that way. And then there is a mind, as Stephen, that's one of the kind of uh, consciousness and what one of the senses that is analyzed in uh, Buddhism. So you have the mind and you have thoughts. And I think this is something we don't consider enough as coming into contact with, because we do come into contact with thought. We are, I mean, you experience it. You sit here in meditation, you're quite on the breath or whatever you do, and you sit there, and suddenly, poof, a thought pop up, and then generally pff, you stick to the thought, and then woof, very quickly you can go very far into the past, into the future, or whatever. And it's interesting to notice that, to actually see how the contact with the thought can actually sometimes have such a paralyzing effect. And I had this experience when. Uh, being in France, and uh, this, I would say, France is one of the most bureaucratic country you could ever find. You know, papers, papers, papers. You are inundated with papers. So anyway, I kind of needed to kind of do something, and I got all the papers. It took me a year to get all the papers, and finally I got the person I could take the papers to, and finally I got to the person. I showed her all the papers... And she looked at them with a little smile and she said, Madame, you need two more forms to fear. Come back in two weeks. So I leave the place and I stood totally stuck to the pavement. I was in the middle of the pavement. But people were trying to kind of go around me because I was totally paralyzed by the thought. This is hopeless. I am hopeless. And, I, and then I, I realized that there was this contact with the thought, and the contact with the thought actually had that powerful effect to grasp at the thought in that way until creative awareness kind of you know, reasserted itself, discernment, intention, attention, which said, well, I mean, at least you can write, you can read, you, know, you should be able to feel these forms. And then I kind of moved. And also something we can see in terms of contact with the thought is a language we use. And actually, as we sit here, as we go around, we actually comment, we talk to ourselves. And it's interesting to see 
our certain words. We have, there is certain words we could, in our mind, we come into contact with, and there is this grasping, nearly immediate, and then the magnifier. And it's interesting to look inside yourself, what are those words that I would say are trigger grasping words? I can often see in myself, in a way, the, the word, you know, I must do this. I think must is one of those words. I must, and then the result. Another one which is interesting is this is unfair. And then you kind of start yourself to kind of really get worked up. Just the word. The contact with the world seems to have straight away the grasping and this magnifying effect. So in a way, looking at all this contact, what I was trying to show that you know, there is no problem with the contact. Because as Stephen showed, it is just a function of being human. That we have these six senses, that we encounter objects, that there is consciousness. So there is no problem with the functioning. But actually, to look at the coloring and the grasping. What happened there? How can we, the meditation help us at that level? Then the other thing I wanted to do was to look at the feeling from the Theravada perspective. And so kind of use a quote from my very good friend, Joseph Goldstein, with whom I was chopping vegetable during that famous retreat. The two of us were chopping vegetable in silence, of course. We were very good. Anyway, that's what he says. In a moment of mindfulness, we are purifying our heart because in that moment, we are free from greed for the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant. And to me, this quote is very similar to the Zen quote, but the Zen quote was dealing with contact. Here we are dealing with feeling. So, in a moment of mindfulness, of being aware, of being present, of really encountering what is going on, we are purifying our heart. But again, we are not purifying our heart by getting rid of anything. But because in that moment we are free from greed for the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant. And to me, this is in a way the test of any practice. This is a test of accomplishment. You can have the most amazing meditative state. You can have the most ex mystical experience. My, my bottom line would be, what do you do when there is pleasant experience and when there is unpleasant experience? I think this is a test. Because it's interesting, contact, we seems to be able to kind of see the contact and be with it. Kind of, there seems to be kind of more able to have space within that. But with the feeling, it seems to be so automatic. We come into contact, there is a feeling, and then we react nearly immediately to the feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, we react. Pleasant, we want more of it. Unpleasant, we push away. And the pleasant, what is interesting with the pleasant, as Stephen was pointing out, we want more, we want it to continue, we want it to repeat. But I think what is even more dangerous, I would say that we grasp, often we grasp at the image of what would be pleasant or what could be pleasant. So that actually we do not see what could be agreeable 
and happy and give us contentment in this moment. But actually, we have, again, this side image that we actually often, I think, grasp at things that is not there. I mean, I can understand grasping at something that is there. I would say, fair enough. But grasping at something that is not there and causing suffering because of that, that I think is kind of added suffering in a way. So in a way, noticing, do we do that? Do we kind of try to live our life, but having this sideways image of what would be more pleasant, what could be more pleasant? And it's also a lot of this, if only I had, comparing mind, I think comes a lot in that. And in a way, I would say mindfulness, awareness, enable us to experience, to know fully the pleasant. And I think this is important. The meditation is not about saying you don't have feeling. There is not pleasantness. I think pleasantness, to be with what is pleasant, I would say is very essential for our well-being as human beings, for our health as human beings. And so I think we can appreciate. And this is a kind of the... The challenge, can we appreciate the pleasant without grasping at it so that it does not kind of, in a way, bring this constriction? And why do we appreciate it without grasping is because we know it is impermanent, it is conditioned. So in a way, can we be with it fully as it is? And when it passes, then we can be with whatever comes next. And then with the unpleasant, again, this is even more automatic. I think pleasant, we kind of are not so aware of it because it's pleasant, so why should we think about it? You know, we kind of just kind of go along with it. But the unpleasant, this is immediate. Unpleasant, I don't want it. I push it away. I kind of, and as soon as you do this, as soon as you reject, as soon as you push away, you magnify it, and then it will dominate us. And then there is that movement within the whole body-mind complex of grasping, which is what I would call, I cannot stand this. How do you feel when you say, I cannot stand this? It's kind of a total constriction and actually total stopping of what I would say potential, which could help you to get out of the difficulty. And recently I had this... um, experience in uh, Sweden uh, in August. I was invited again to Sweden, so they did not think me such a bad teacher after all. <laughs> I was not so weird. So they invited me again. And oh, 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 I had, before I went, I had sciatica. And once I got there, it was like, I, I mean, I had, must say I never had it for a long time as bad as that. And there was one sitting where, I mean, I was doing the clock like uh, I am doing here. And I was sitting in the whole sitting, I mean, total contact with the left leg. And there was this amazing pain. And at that level, it was rather unpleasant. The fact that we don't grasp doesn't mean it is not going to be unpleasant. I think one has to be careful, you know. So but what, in a way, allowed me to be with that for the 30 minutes, and not, not in a way rush, was just, this is what is going on. And just to be with that, in that kind of spacious, fully knowing manner, the kind of the whole, kind of what was going on with the leg ups and down and whatever. And just to be with it, just to, in a way, what I would say, to stand it. 
But I could see that if I say I cannot stand it, it would have in a way magnified, been even worse. But with the, I can be with that. I can stand it. But also knowing it could change. Because, you know, I got up and I went to take a painkiller. So that, you know, the non-grasping doesn't stop you from taking painkiller and doing something about it. I think one has to be kind of constructive here as well. But to see that, I think this thing of I cannot stand it, I think is really we have to look time to time how we bring that in the situation. And then with the unpleasant, again, it is very interesting, the fear, the image of what could be unpleasant. So it's not what is unpleasant now, but what might be unpleasant in the future. And then you have this fear with you as you go about your life that this is, and you grasp at the fear of what is unpleasant. And I had a friend I met recently, and I was so, you know, we touched by his story. I mean, I meet him once a year, and so I, went, I saw him in June. And I said, you know, how are you? And he was quite, there was a kind of a calmness about him that I've never seen before. And he said, you know, it's terrible. I mean, you know, it's terrible in a way something happened. And so he told me what happened. And then he said, it's weird, but I feel totally fine with it. And he said, you know, since I am nearly born, since a very young age, I have been afraid. I have been terrified that this was going to happen. And so for 50 years, I was afraid. Nearly, not constantly, but a lot of the time, he would have this fear. He would have this kind of grasping at this fear about this event that if it happened, it would be so terrible, it would be so awful. How could he survive, live, or whatever? And so it kind of was with him. A lot of the time. And then finally it happened. And he said, and, he would, and on his face he had this kind of utter astonished look. I feared it for 50 years. And it happened. And it is totally okay. I am okay. So he kept looking at him. I think trying to find the thing that was so terrible that was going to happen. But it did not happen. And he was kind of like, yeah, I'm okay. And I think it, it, it kind of showed me that, kind of often the fear of the unpleasant, the grasping at the fear of the unpleasant is worse than what actually might happen in reality. So in a way, again, encountering with the mindfulness, experiencing the whole of the unpleasant, and again, seeing kind of, that it is impermanent and that it is conditioned. And so, in a way, I think what Joseph was talking about in terms of the feeling is that we become free from the grasping and from the rejecting, and then we have the freedom to be more present and more creatively engaged with the self, with the world, and with the world, and with the people. And I would just like to finish with just two maybe small story of uh, contact and feeling and non-grasping. And one is of Achancha. He's a Theravada master, a great master who is dead now. And there is, I think, this wonderful story about him being in his room and a young American person, man, visiting him. And you enter 
the Abbott room in Thailand, and it's the weirdest thing. I don't know if you have been to Abbott's room in Thailand or Master's room in Thailand, but they're filled with objects. You have kind of, because people seem, because they renunciate, people give them everything. They give them watches, they give them tennis rackets, they give them all kind of really weird things. Anyway, in that room, we've actually, I mean, I don't know what was in Achancha room, but what was there on his table next to him was a glass. There was this beautiful blue glass made of this beautiful glass. I mean, it was just exquisite. And so the young American man said, but I mean, you are a renunciate. How can you have this glass? You know, how can you kind of, you know, be attached, you know, kind of utilize this glass? And then Achan Cha said, oh, the glass is beautiful, but I am not attached to it because I know it is already broken. But still, I can use it. I can enjoy it. But I will not grasp at it because for me, it is in a way already gone. And the other story is about uh, an ancient story about a monk in a hermitage, Japanese uh, hermit in a hermitage. And the story goes, there is this little hermitage in the mountain and there is a village. And in the village, you know, there is fishermen and there is various people. And there is this kind of old couple who has a young daughter. And the young daughter suddenly becomes pregnant. And then the parents say, who is it, who is it, who is it? Because she's not married. And finally, you know, she doesn't know what to say. So finally she said, the monk in the hermitage. So they really kind of, you know, wow, you know, this is terrible. So they wait for the child to be born. They take the baby. They go up to the kind of hermitage. They knock at the door. The monk says, yes. And then the parents say, here it is, your child. And so the monk says, okay. And so the monk takes the child, feeds the child. Da, da, da. After just a few weeks, the girl feels terrible. because It is not the monk. And so finally she says, no, 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 it's not the monk. It was a young fisherman in the market. So then the parents say, ah, this is terrible, we made a mistake. So they rush to the hermitage, knock at the door. And the kind of the monk comes with the baby and they say, oh, it's not your child, you know. Oh, so, give the child back. And this is a story. <laughs> of non-grasping and caring, I would say. <laughs> so, are there any questions or comments? Yes. Ask a question about contact. And, well, I'll ask it since I can get it out. Especially with something that I contact outside of me, say you there, and I'm looking at you. Um, the experience of you, all of that, is an experience that I have, I guess, inside of myself. Whatever it is, that, uh, there are all kinds of experiences, all kinds of things that I'm having contact with right now, and I'm aware of you, and I'm aware of some of them. But the, it seems like the actual experience is somewhere here uh, within me. Mm -hmm. And so, I guess my question about contact is: is my contact 
my initial contact and my awareness with that experience of myself, which implies you, you there as, you know, like to say the birch tree or whatever it is, someone, um, is, is contact referring to, are there two levels of contact, I guess I'm saying, is my awareness with that experience of you and then that experience being a contact with you. Are there two, I don't know. I think Stephen would be much better at possibly answering such a question. You see, this kind of question of uh, the awareness of the awareness. I mean, this is a long debate in the Buddhist tradition. And I would not like to go down that path because I am not a philosopher. So personally, I don't know about, you know, double contact or not. I could not say. My only, the way I experience it myself, it seems to me that, well, there is this conscious being. But this conscious being is conscious through all the senses all at once. I mean, it's totally complex. Then you can explain it in a Buddhist way with the, all the eye consciousness, nose consciousness, mind consciousness. Or you can explain it in a brain, neurological way. In da, da, da. I would not be able to explain it, though I have read about it. But in terms of meditative experience and non-grasping, to me, what I'm interested in, in is kind of, generally it is very hard. I mean, unless you are on a meditation retreat, or unless you really, uh, the intention comes in as a kind of a higher level of wanting to really be with the contact in that moment, I realize contact after I have grasped. And so I kind of not even kind of, you know, I cannot even talk about, you know, pre-awareness, which is then going to be aware of the contact. What I experience is I kind of see myself, ah, for the last hour I have been kind of, you know, going around with this. And why did this, why am I kind of going around with this in a little negative way? Is because back there somebody said something and I was just passing by. And even though they did not talk about me, contact with my ears and possibly ear consciousness or brain neuron function and whoop, the whole grasping mechanism go. So I'm sorry, but I cannot answer your question, but possibly you could try it on Stephen and see if he can answer it. Or you have to find out for yourself, is there, do you experience a kind of a back awareness to the awareness of the contact? This is, I think, for you to find out. Personally, I can't really see it that way, but I would not say I know much about these things. Yeah. When you were talking about Hui Neng, you used the term purification, and I'm, I've heard it used before in reference to being able to stay in contact with pain and I don't know whether that's, um, whether I'm understanding purification in that. It's, it's different than the way Joseph Goldstein used it. But when you stayed in contact, for example, with the pain in your leg, mm -hmm. um, is there a process that you would call purification that goes on? Not at all. I am not. I, 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 again, I am a kind of quite a, spectac a skeptical French person. 
So what I find interesting for me, what is interesting is that generally when we talk of purification, either we do lots of things, and there is this idea if I do lots of prostration or lots of whatever, then I'm going to be purified. And then I won't have so many problems. <laughs> and recently I met somebody who had spent two months doing lots of purification. He said to me, but I still have the same problem. Well, I said, well, obviously it doesn't work fast. I mean, maybe later it will work better. But obviously not on the moment. So to me, what was interesting in the court of Winnegg and also in the court of uh, Joseph, because I, I mean, I, I would have to check with Joseph, see if I misinterpret him. But I think what they're talking, you see, generally we have this idea of purification that we're getting rid of things getting rid of the object, getting rid of the whatever is it, whatever. When actually they say the purification is in the fact that you don't grasp. But it doesn't mean that there is what we call purification. I think what they mean is that there is spaciousness. So they seem to talk about purifying more in terms of spaciousness than purification in terms of you get rid of the bad thing. Though in a way what you could say is that you get rid of the obstacle of grasping. I think, in a way, that's me what, I think that's what they say. You are purifying in terms of that you remove the obstacle of grasping. But I'm not sure that they talk about purification in terms of getting rid of the poison because sitting there with my leg did not make a difference, but taking the painkiller really helped, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, no, I, would, I, would, uh, I was aware that I was not talking of neutral, but I was also aware I, I did not have so much time. And I must say, uh, this is more kind of like a, not a kind of a def defect, but maybe a weakness in the person here, which I really, I mean, I really have a, a hard time really kind of, I think one can relatively, I mean, relatively easily know the pleasant, relatively easily know the unpleasant. But during the retreat in March, I was trying to find this neutral. And I mean, I'm sorry, but I could not find it. You know? <laughs> so I think until I cannot find it, I think I won't talk about it. <laughs> Right. Posi when I check out, mm -hmm. usually trace it back to some sense of dullness or boredom or mm -hmm. not engaged. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I am not saying that I won't investigate it and talk about it at some point. <laughs> but. <laughs> Because I have not kind of really found it yet, or kind of, <laughs> I am not exactly able to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, there is one there.
not aware of contact, but actually there was no grasping in it. And, and, for, and when we look back and we say, oh, I've been doing this, and it's, it's usually things that we're, that where there's kind of where we lose ourselves in them is a common way to say it. So when we say there's an element of no self there, like we're doing an activity that, um, that's very engaging. Again, I think we could do this in two different ways. You can engage in an activity and you really in it totally and there is no grasping. And in that moment, there is no discrimination, no judgment. There is just the doing of the activity. And we can also do the activity and be kind of, you know, grasping at various speed of it. But I would say in the activity there is contact. I mean, I would say there there would be contact because of the various things you are doing anyway. But I think there the 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 the, possibly the intention the the tension is possibly not on the contact. The one could say the thing that is more predominant is the intention, the activity, the fact that you are in it. But I would say if there is awareness it seems to be there is kind of awareness of what one is doing in the moment, even though we're not. I mean, I think with contact, one has to be careful because I'm talking of kind of trying to have a certain attitude which look at it because, as you said, it's so complex. At any given moment, there is so many places I am in contact with. So I think sometimes what we can do is not be kind of, you know, aware exactly at each same level of all the point of contact, but having what I would say the spaciousness around all these point of contact. So that actually we're more aware of the spaciousness than at the specific contact themselves, possibly. Yes? Yeah, no, it, that, because I think of grasping as being something you want to you want to keep, and you're talking about negative grasping as in rejection. Um, but but that is a grasping. <coughs> yes, yeah, it's just I have not found a word. Mm-hmm. You see, I, 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 because positive negative here doesn't really work. So it could be better to say grasping, grasping at something, or. Grasping in reverse, that would be the other way I would say it. But that's what I mean. Either you grasp, in scare quote, positively, because you want something, you like it, you move toward it. That, in that way, I mean positive. And you grasp negatively in reverse in the fact that you push it away. But pushing something away, what I was trying to point out, when you push something away, you're grasping as much as when you want something. There is the same mechanism process going on. But yes, the use of the word, I agree, is not very good, but I've not found better ones yet. No, I think, actually, I think it is good. Ah. It just took me a little while to figure out that that was a good one. <laughs> yes? Is it, is it different from aversion and judging? Your, your negative grasping, is it, is it different? 
No, I, I mean, I mean a version. I mean, but I think again, as soon as you know, if you have a version, generally you have judgment with it very often. There is discrimination. There is the fact that you have decided this is bad, or whatever, terrible, or whatever it is, and then uh, whatever. I mean, generally, yes. I mean, in in that's where the discernment, you know, where you can have, you know, whatever. Again, you could say you have uh, wise judgment, wise discernment, and then you could say you have negative discernment, when you kind of decide something is terrible or whatever. Again, that would be kind of quite a wide subject. Something? No? Ah. Okay, last one. Yeah. Again, I'm sorry, you would have to talk to Stephen about <laughs> When it comes to classification, I am not a very good person for that. He's, a, he's the one who will know kind of chapter and verses. I am not too good on that one. Um, I think it's kind of, again, it's kind of a whole range. You know, it's kind of, you have the thought, then you have the ability to discern, then you have the ability to reflect, then again, within the reflection, you can, you can totally kind of, you know, kind of have what I would call spec- speculation. And you could actually kind of speculate and really distract yourself and entertain yourself with kind of speculation, empty kind of, you know, idle speculation. Or you could have this amazing reflection which could lead to insight. I think, again, it's not the thought by itself is not how do you say, good or bad otherwise. It is a function. And out of the function, then there are various kind of activity of that function, of what they would call mind consciousness, which, I mean, of course, the culmination of that would be the clear seeing, would be the wisdom. But again, this is kind of a, your question is a wide subject, and I can't really address it properly, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Uh, so reflection is one sixth sense. Is that sixth? Yes. Everything goes in it. Everything. You see, I mean, it's, it's not a kind of very good categories. It's very wide category. But the, yeah, in the mind category, everything of mental activity of any kind would go in there. But again, in some, in some uh, tradition of Buddhism, then not only you have the six consciousness, but then you have the sevens, you have the eights, and off we go. But I won't go into that. <laughs> no, okay. Oh, I would, again, I would have a little different view than Stephen on that one. When he said things happens to us, I... Let's say I don't do- totally go for those words. 
to me, it is kind of really the whole thing works together. You know, I mean, of course, sometimes it's, we feel the thought happen to us. But generally, the thought happened to us because there have been a previous cause for the thought, previous contact, previous feeling, previous, I mean, it kind of, you know, it's generally not that I am here, this bare nothingness, and then suddenly, poof, the thought comes in, or the hearing comes in. I mean, there is a, I think to me, it's much more complex. So I would not say that thought just happened to us. I would say there is a little more kind of things going on there. But I think I'm a little tired now to kind of go into it. (laughs) I'm sorry. So maybe we'll finish here. This talk was given by Martine Bachelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 14, 2002. It is an offering of the